<clears throat> Last week, we uh, had Janine come and share, just kind of shared about this idea of our perception of God radically affects the way we live, that the way we view Him, the way we understand Him to be, kind of changes the way we live out our life. The week before that was a little uh, open letter to new community, and this is the open letter to new community part two. And uh, what I want to do is just remind you really quick of a few things we said two weeks back. That way you kind of understand a little bit of the context. We have been going through the book of Revelation. We've been covering a different letter each week. And then we get to this place where we decided, how cool would it be if there was actually a letter written to New Community? And so since there wasn't, we made one up and decided, let's write our own letter to New Community and uh, to take passages of Scripture that really reflect who we are as a community and ask some questions of ourselves And so what we set out to do is to really orient uh, this community around Christ. And we wanted to do so by these three things. We wanted to give a few warnings, some charges or some affirmations to the community, and uh, some encouragements at the end, okay? So that's that's, uh, the goal. The first week, all we did was we had time for the warnings. We talked about those areas of us as a community where we would say, man, thumbs up, we're doing really well, but be cautious that if we kind of stray from where we're at as a community, it will lead to a place where we don't necessarily want to be. So I want to remind you of those three things really quick. The first one is this, that you are powerful. We talked about the idea that we were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. I mean, that is an incredibly powerful statement. That you and I were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. That's a huge responsibility. And yet the scriptures say, and we talked about this, that His divine power, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That means we lack nothing through Christ. That all of us are called, we're powerful, we're equipped, that if we have uh, surrendered our life to Him, that we are a child of God, and with that comes the opportunity to manifest His glory. And it should affect our relationships. It should affect our work environment. It should affect our neighborhoods, the social and spiritual needs of our city. It, it should have far-reaching effect because we are powerful. The second one, virtual community. Virtual community was simply a reminder that while we would say right now that our community is living very well into this idea of life together, where we share with one another, love one another, give to one another, while that is a strong area of our community and we speak of it often, it could be easy for us to drift from real community into what we would call virtual community. And one of the ways we kind of challenged with this, is that community we described as a a growing dynamic. And what we mean by that is simply this, what you put into it is what you get out of it. So if you sit here longing for community, desiring to be known, desiring to be loved, desiring to relate to other people, to befriend someone else, then really the call or the challenge to all of us is be Loving, give your life away, befriend the stranger. And as you do those things, all that you're longing for, you will actually begin to find. 
because community is a growing dynamic. But it's too easy for us, I think, to kind of sit back in virtual or quasi-community where we can kind of drift into this place because of our independent and kind of absorbed culture, self-absorbed culture, we kind of drift into this place where maybe these things become more realistic of who we are. We know a hundred people, or maybe 200, or maybe 500, or however many friends you have on Facebook, and yet we're known by no one. You ever feel that way? Like, you, you know everybody. Everybody's your friend, so to speak. But you don't really, truly feel known by anyone. Maybe another example is we, we put our feelings out on social media. And I think often we do that for confirmation bias. Right? This idea that, like, this is how I feel, and then people go, yeah, it's okay for you to feel that way. Or we put it on there, and they're like, yeah, you can get through this. And while those are sometimes good things, we, what we do in doing that is we sometimes keep a healthy distance from everyone's real life. So we can put it out there, we can feel like we've gotten some comfort, encouragement, but the question is, are you actually really in someone else's life? The one is virtual community, the other is probably true or more authentic community. The other third illustration would be that we tend to be takers in relationship rather than people who are giving. That's another example of virtual community. And so we said that what's needed is honesty, vulnerability. We even challenged with this idea that the greatest enemy of true community is a lack of communal honesty and personal vulnerability. So keep living into this idea of true community. And the last one, that we remind you of was lazy spirituality. And it's easy for us to kind of slip into spiritual lethargy, this apathy, this uh, disinterest with our faith, maybe even sliding into a comfortable faith where we're not continuing to pursue Christ. And we challenge each of us, continue to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Continue to live out your faith, right? Rather than just sit back and absorb. And all of this is leading to the second half of the open letter. And today, that's what we want to share. We want to talk about what does it really look like to live into some of what we have been called to as a community. And to do that, I wanted to highlight a particular verse that we'll be focused on this morning. I think this verse is probably one of the more central verses to what it means to live as someone who follows Christ. The verse says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for Christ's sake, will save it. In order for us to get at this idea, we uh, thought we would start with a quick little video. And uh, this video uh, will probably need no explanation, but your hands may sweat a little bit. As you watch it, mine do. But uh, check out this video and try to put yourself in their shoes. And then uh, Kevin will come and explain. All right. So uh, how many people's uh, heart rates got going a little bit when they watched that? <laughs> uh, how many people are climbers in here? Okay. Dude, who knows what just happened right there? Yeah, okay, so if you're a climber, you uh, probably are pretty familiar with this. This just happened not too long ago, uh, within the last month. 
or so. Uh, the guy that was just climbing there, his name is Tommy Caldwell. He and another guy named Kevin Jorgensen climbed the Don Wall on El Capitan. So in uh, Yosemite National Park, there is this famous, famous climbing, uh, this huge rock. It's an enormous rock, 3,000 feet big. And there's a certain uh, line that they would climb, and it's considered the Don Wall. Some people consider it the, one of the hardest climbs in the world. And it's, uh, it's significant. This is significant because they did what's called free climbing. So free climbing means that they did not use any uh, equipment uh, other than for protection. So at no point did they use a rope to hoist themselves up. They didn't use any cams or anything like that to get a step on to, uh, to advance up the, uh, up the wall. The only thing that they used was ropes for when and if they fell. So that's called free climbing. So they climbed that entire thing with no help other than just the, uh, the equipment to save themselves when and if they fell off the wall. So the coolest part about this is that's the first time that that rock has ever been climbed, free climbed. So it, it, this was a significant thing in the climbing world. Uh, it got a lot of media press. People were showing it on, um, on different uh, news stations and stuff because it's, it's a pretty significant thing. It had been attempted many, many times before, but they were the first two uh, people to ever climb this or free climb the Don Wall. Let me give you a couple of stats because uh, this was, I kind of followed this story along the way, and it's, it's amazing what they did. It took them 19 days on the wall to climb that. 19 days. Uh, they have had five attempts climbing the same wall in as many years previous. So they had been to this wall, this same climb, five different times and never made it past the 12th, um, the 12th pitch. So uh, the 12th pitch is essentially the 12th rope length, okay? The full uh, climb itself is 32 pitches long. So the five times before they never made it past the 12th, this time they made it all 32 it's uh, 3,000 vertical feet, like I said. And Jorgensen, uh, who was the other guy, he was the guy that was yelling, saying, good job, Tommy. He spent 10 days himself trying to do that climb right there. That's pitch 15, the hardest pitch. It's actually, you don't really gain much elevation. You're just skirting across the rock horizontally. It took him 10 days, 11 different tries to get through that place. He would fall, he would go, he would rest, rest his forearms, tried again, fell. It's an incredible, incredible story. Uh, they spend the night on these six by four. It's called a portal edge. It's essentially a six by four uh, metal frame with nylon, and it just hangs on the wall. And they just sleep in this place. It's absolutely terrifying. You could see what uh, what they looked like in the bottom side of that video. You could see a couple of them lined up together. Uh, they had to climb almost exclusively in the shade or at night, because when it gets hot. Your skin, you guys watch that, you guys, your skin got kind of sweaty on your hands. Your skin is more likely to rip off your fingers. And so they had to climb at night so that their skin didn't rip off their fingers. They couldn't do it all at night, so the, the skin that did rip off their fingers, they would tape and then they would super glue over. They had to take special rest days just to rest their hands to help regenerate their skin so they could continue uh, to climb. Um, and then they would use sandpaper for all the calluses. They would sandpaper the calluses off then fill the holes that are made in their hands with super glue, then tape them, and then climb at night when it was absolutely freezing so the skin didn't rip off their hands. Uh, so it's incredible. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so if you're a climber, you're probably jacked at watching that. If you're not, you may be like, those people are absolutely insane. I would never do that. You will never do that, I'll promise you. Um, but uh, here, here is why I bring this up. 
Because big wall climbing, free climbing, is not a comfortable sport. At no point did that guy look like he was comfortable on that rock, right? <laughs> At no point uh, do they say, I think, when they're, you know, kind of in those portal edges, 1,500 feet looking down, I don't think those two guys look at each other and go, man, I'm so comfortable right now. I think for 19 days that, that heart rate is elevated and they're just kind of in that uncomfortable spot, uneasy about what's going on, about the climb they have to do the next day, about failing the climb 10 times earlier, about all that kind of stuff. It's an incredibly uncomfortable sport. Whether it's the height or the, the fact that that dude's forearms are screaming throughout that entire climb because so much of it is uh, just those you know, little finger holds that he has. They're dirty, they're hot, the skin on their fingers is ripping off. They're sleeping hundreds of feet in the air. It is incredibly uncomfortable. And yet, because they embraced that uncomfort over 19 days, they are the first two people that get to say that they free-climbed the Don Wall. It's pretty cool. I believe our Christian faith is not all that much different than that. I believe that truly following Christ is not comfortable. It's not a comfortable endeavor. It urges us to live in such a way that we have to quiet all of our natural instincts and press into a life that demands more than just seeking paths of least resistance. And so we continue this morning the open letter with two charges, and here is the first of the two charges, embrace discomfort. Discomfort is something that I believe we naturally seek to avoid, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think we're always seeking comfort in our lives. Think about it this way. When our legs are tired, what do we do? Sit down. Find a place to lay down. When our stomachs growl, we go get something to eat. When we're tired, we take a nap. When we're cold, we go get a sweatshirt. We're always trying to keep this place of homeostasis, of just comfort. Let's always try to alleviate the discomfort in our lives. And I believe that that mentality has not only influenced most things about Western culture, but I'd say it's influenced a lot of stuff about our American church. When churches move, they generally move to bigger, better, more comfortable buildings, better parking, things like that. When they get rid of the wood pews, they find soft chairs. How many of you have recognized that you're sitting in a soft chair this morning? A lot better than a wood pew, right? When they can afford it, they begin to upgrade their coffee. Volunteer-led services quickly turn to paid staff-led services so that the volunteers can just come and be. They don't have to serve as much. We struggle to try to make our services fit into the hour time slot or the hour and a half time slot. And if they go over, then we have to apologize for making people stay a little bit longer. I think whether in our culture or in our American church, we have placed an absolute premium on being comfortable. And yet, even though we insulate ourselves with comfort, discomfort really is the great equalizer among all humanity. We will all be uncomfortable at times. We may not be climbing the wall like that, but human experience will bring uncomfortable situations. You will get sick. You'll lose a family member. Your job gets terminated. You break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You get injured in a car accident. A friendship dissolves. There are always things of uncomfort that are around us. Throughout each of our lives, each one of us will deal with physical or emotional discomfort. It's a given. It cannot be avoided. But what we do in these situations, I believe, tells a lot about us. 
It tells a lot about the resolve of our faith. The reality of discomfort is it does not stop with just these extenuating circumstances, but I would go as far as to say that the very nature of the Christian life is one of embracing discomfort. See, the life modeled by Christ, most notably on the cross, this is how we are called. Go back to that verse, Luke, that, uh, that Russ read. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Is there a more poignant image than daily picking up your cross? To say that the cross is uncomfortable is perhaps the greatest understatement ever said from this stage. Jesus is literally using the greatest historical image of human suffering, the cross which he endured, to explain what it should look like to follow him. He didn't say, pick up your Bibles. He didn't say, go to your local church building and follow me. He exclaimed, do not hide from discomfort and suffering. In fact, shoulder it as you follow me every single day. I believe the cross is not just something that we look at in admiration of Christ. It's not just an image for our purposes or or, or a reminder. It's an actual metaphor for how our lives are to be lived. We are called to deny ourselves and daily embrace the discomfort of choosing Christ over everything else competing for our attention and resources. The very nature of being a Christian demands that we live differently than the world. When the world is frantically seeking ways to comfort themselves, we are embracing and shouldering the discomforts of our lives. Here's what I mean by that. When the world chooses to be selfish, we choose to live in community. When the world gives only from a place of abundance, we choose to give sacrificially. When the world leaves because their needs aren't being met, we lean in harder, trying to be the change we desire. When the world harbors bitterness and seeks revenge, we forgive over and over and over again. When the world turns away the stranger because of inconvenience, we open our lives. You see, when we seek comfort, we're trying to find the path of least resistance. But I'm convinced that that path will never lead to real life, to true life, to full life. How many people have ever heard of the Sport Elect Ab Belt? That was a harsh transition, I know. Just, just follow with me here. The Sport Elect Ab Belt. I, maybe next service I'll, I'll uh, send a picture up there. We could watch the infomercial for it. That's probably where you've seen it. It's a battery-powered ab belt that you wear, and it sends electric shocks into your ab muscles. It stimulates those muscles, and it's supposed to develop a, a pretty rock-solid six-pack. I lived with five guys in college, uh, and we were super busy college students, like all college students. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek for those of you outside of college and remember how much time you had. Uh, <laughs> nothing against college students, but um, 
We were busy. We didn't have time maybe to do as many uh, crunches or sit-ups as we thought we should, but we all we were kind of, it was like this time of season, we we're all getting ready like, hey, it's going to be summer, we're, you know, probably going to be at the beach or something. So we all chipped in, I think like eight or, or ten bucks. One of my college roommates is actually here this morning. We all chipped in a little bit of money, and we, uh, we bought the ab belt, the Sport Elect ab belt off the infomercials, and it was this big belt. Uh, you had to be, you didn't have to be shirtless, but we always were when we wore it. You'd put on, uh, you'd put on this like jelly kind of stuff, like some sort of a, I don't know, it was a paste or it was gross. Uh, and then you put the belt on and then it sent these shocks into your muscles, stimulating the muscles. Uh, you may find this shocking, but it actually didn't work. <laughs> I wore that thing quite a few times, never, never once. Uh, did I get a six-pack because of it? I did, however, get a sweet rash on my stomach from, <laughs> from the gel uh, stuff that I put on. I think we all got rashes from it. Um, maybe we should have washed it in between uses. I don't know. But um, here's, here's why I bring it up. Uh, I bring this up because we, as a group of five people, tried to take the easy way out. We saw the path of least resistance. Instead of doing sit-ups, let's just wear this contraption and maybe it will work. But the path of least resistance did not lead us to great abs, really only led us to needing to use a topical rash cream. <laughs> the reality is, and I tell this kind of ridiculous story to say this, you cannot skirt around discomfort and expect to have a deep and tried and steadfast faith. You cannot skirt around discomfort and expect to have a deep, tried, and steadfast faith. Paul speaks clearly to this in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in our suffering, in our discomfort, because we know it will bring endurance and character and hope. We rejoice in our suffering and in our discomfort, because we know it will bring a more full life. As a people, I believe we have to remember that the Christian life is not easy. It was never intended to be easy. Jesus was clear with this fact. Paul does not mince words about this reality in Romans 5. And we have to come face to face with those discomforts. So I ask you, I ask myself, how do we respond when we are confronted with discomfort? Do we run away from God? Do we turn towards addictions to silence the pain? Do we establish bad habits just for short-term ease? Because when discomfort comes, you have one of two options. Either you embrace it or you run and hide in fear and anger. Rob Bell writes this. He says, Our tendency in the midst of suffering is to turn on God, to get angry and bitter and shake our fist at the sky and say, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how much this hurts. The cross is God's way of taking all of our accusations, excuses, and arguments. The cross is God taking on flesh and blood and saying, 
Me too. Embracing discomfort means not shaking your fist at God, not hiding and seeking easier paths. It means accepting any circumstance and finding ways to glorify Christ in any situation. It means living above reproach. It means choosing to follow him no matter what that difficulty is. And the only reason, the only reason we can do this is because Christ embraced all the discomfort and suffering the world could give him on our behalf. We have the ability not only to recognize but to embrace the discomfort and suffering that comes into our lives, not to run from it, not to hide, not to choose paths of least resistance, but to embrace discomfort, to walk into it without fear, trusting and knowing that God is faithful to see us through. This is what it means to pick up our cross daily. Now the second half of that verse is a verse that we, uh, or a section we often overlook. If you look at the text, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's a tendency, I think, in the Christian world to focus on that first part, right? To say, okay, deny yourself, okay, take up your cross, to do that every single day, but we sometimes fail to recognize the last part, which is to follow Him. To follow Him. To Christ offers an invitation. He says, my desire is that you would follow me, that you would pursue me, that you would know me. And really, it's, a, it's this beautiful picture of an invitation, a call. There's a quote that goes like this, Jesus takes the initiative and calls the disciples. So the idea is that it's driven by him, right? He goes on to say that in many respects, the circle of disciples gathered about Jesus is no startling novelty in the first century Palestine. In the terminology of rabbi and disciple and the fact that they followed their master. But in this point, in the genesis of the circle of disciples, there's a striking difference. In rabbinical circles, the initiative into discipleship lay with the disciple. Take to yourself a teacher is the advice given to the aspiring disciple or follower by a Jewish teacher. We have no record of a call issued by a Jewish rabbi to a disciple in all rabbinic literature. What in Judaism was a pious duty of the disciple is here the sovereign act of the master. Jesus reserves the initiative for himself. See, the idea behind that is that it's not on us to just be about pursuing, but there's this beautiful invitation from God saying, I've chosen you, I've called you, I desire for you to follow me. That he's chosen us, not just to to listen, not just to watch, not just to know or to read about what it means to follow him, but to begin to imitate him, to begin to follow him. I had the privilege uh, years ago of leading uh, wilderness trips. There would be these canoe hiking, kind of backpacking trips. And uh, I loved doing it. It was uh, fun for numerous reasons, but we would go for a week into the woods with a group of like 10 to 12, 15 teens. Uh, We would have canoes for every like two or three people. 
And uh, you had to carry all your supplies for the week, all of your food for the week, along with the canoe through the woods till you get to the next lake. And then you'd paddle for a while and then you'd keep doing this. And you'd make your way through this seven-day loop until you got back to where you started. And it was uh, fascinating for many reasons. We were teaching leadership, we were teaching discipleship, but one of the things we taught often was the idea of following. But following implies that somebody knows where they're going, right? And so initially, all of the, uh, the students were pretty fine with it because they'd be following us. They would go, okay, that's the leader, they're going that way, we're going that way too, we have no idea where we're going apart from the leader, But then there came a point about the second or third day where we would wake up in the morning, we'd pick two teens, we'd say, come here, we'd hand them the map, we'd hand them the compass, and we'd say, you're on, you're leading today, we're going to go from point A to point B, you're in charge. And we would just fall in rank with every other teen in the group and we would follow. And man, there is a way different feel with following. Especially when you're following a teen in the middle of the woods. There's a way different feel. But it's the thing we're called to. The discipleship is about following. It's putting our complete trust in someone else. But here's where I think the rubber meets the road. The reason those teens were able to lead is because they had been given the means. They had the map and the compass. They'd been given the responsibility. But in our unique setting with Christ, the reason it's easier for us to follow is because we follow in light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the second thing we want to kind of charge this community in is not just to embrace discomfort, but to embrace the good news. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. We, uh, I want to show you something that probably can only be seen if you turn there or if you're flipping uh, on your phone or in, your, uh, in the text. What I want to do is show you a little bit of the progression of the text. You start off in the book of Revelation and in chapter 1 there's this introduction. You begin to see what the intent of the letter is. You begin to get a perspective of where John the writer is going. And then you move into this section that we've been looking at, these seven letters. And we describe that each one of the letters has a bit of a pattern. It starts with a positive affirmation, it moves to a corrective discipline, and then finishes with a motivating promise. And so not only do you see that pattern letter to letter, but you see another pattern in these seven letters. And the pattern you see is that Christ starts off with the church of Ephesus, and he's saying good good things, right? He's really heavy on the positive affirmation, pretty light on the corrective discipline. So good job, keep it up, you're doing amazing, this church is influencing the city or its culture, you're seeing people come to know Christ, you're enduring tribulation, you're, you're doing all these things well, and then he'll give an occasional like, hey, but let me remind you, don't, don't go astray in these things. But then the, the letters like progressively decline, it's a bit disappointing and it's a bit uh, sad to see the movement but you get to the last letter and we looked at this at one point a couple weeks back but you get to the last letter and you see no positive affirmations everything in the letter is corrective discipline everything in the letter is listen you are neither hot nor cold which means you have no usefulness so repent return to me change your ways right there's all all of it is corrective discipline 
And then you get to this point in the book where you're seeing this depressing movement and it brings us to chapter 4. So if you look at chapter 4, it says this. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So John has this vision. And he looks and he sees, man, there's this door open in heaven. And then it says, come. Come up here, right? So he says, come and let me show you something. And he enters into the throne room of God. And he's looking around and he describes it the rest of chapter 4. And then we get to chapter 5 and it says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went... And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. There's this moment where there's this picture of someone who's unable to open the scroll. And and the text says that John looks at it and begins to weep. There's nobody on heaven and nobody on earth that can possibly open it. It reminds me of how my kids feel sometimes when they try to open that jar from the store they get. They want like peanut butter and jelly and they're just like trying and they just cannot and they get exasperated and they try every technique possible to open it. You, you know, you've been there and you need like the bodybuilder arm to like even turn the jar. And they come to me like completely like, I, I give up, I can't do it, Right? And it's at that moment where he's saying, I I broke down crying. There was no way that this could be opened. And the text says in verse 5, and here's what's interesting. The text says in verse 5 this. It says, here we go. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he can open the scroll. So there's this picture of a lion And he says the lion is the one that's capable of opening it. But then the text does this weird thing. It goes down to verse 9 and it says this. Uh, Verse 6, you see see somebody seated on the throne. You see someone next to the throne. That someone next to the throne is a lamb, it says, as though he's been slain. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open it, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people. For God. So two things are happening at the exact same time in the throne room. There's this picture of a lion who's capable of opening the scroll. And then all of a sudden, what they see is the lion turned lamb. And they witness this lamb who looks as if he's been slain, who steps forward, takes the scroll, and then they begin to declare with great worship, worthy are you to open it. Why? 
because you've given your very life. The lamb was slain. That what we need is both a great lion and this humble lamb. And the combination of the two is why Revelation 5 speaks to this idea of worship. We worship and we follow and we're willing to embrace discomfort because we can embrace the good news that Jesus rescued us through Christ. That we have life through Him because He laid down His life for us. Which should call us to follow, right? The last part of that text, follow. Lose your life and in losing it, You find it. That's why the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when they stumble and fall, when they screw up, they run to God and not from Him because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death. Our encouragement to us as a community is to continue to embrace discomfort but in the midst of that, to embrace good news. What we want to do is wrap up our time by giving a few affirmations to us as a community. Let me start by, uh, by saying this. <clears throat> Neither Russ or I could imagine working at any other church than this one. We absolutely love this place. We love this community. I speak for myself. I think I know Russ well enough to speak for him that even if we didn't work here, we would attend here. We would be just a couple of dudes sitting here and being a part of this community because we believe in this community so much because we love this community so much. We are proud of this community. We're proud of the people that call this place their church. We're proud of the way that new community has been and is seen in the city of Spokane. And I would say the last couple months has been incredibly exciting for us and fun for us because we believe we are in the cusp of some incredible things in the future that this community can do. We're excited for the future of what new community can be in Spokane. And so this open letter to new community does not come as, uh, or out of a place of frustration or worry that we're not hitting these marks, but rather out of a place of hope and love. Trusting and knowing that the people of Newcom are some of the most committed and loving people in Spokane. So we came up with a list of uh, affirmations or encouragements, ways that we see new community living these things out. So the first is this, continue to be a people that care for the downtrodden, the forgotten, the overlooked, the marginalized in Spokane. Continue to be a people that create a safe place to worship for those who have been hurt by the church. We encourage you to continue to be a people that seek to be risky and to send people on mission. We don't want to keep anyone. Our desire is to continue to send and to mobilize and equip people to go out. Continue to be a people that earnestly pursues God through prayer, through study, and through the disciplines. Again, we encourage you to be people that continue to love one another with a unity of spirit. I think we allow and love the fact that we allow for a diversity of theology, but the core or center of love. Continue to be a people that understand that church 
is not simply a Sunday service, but rather a committed group of people on mission together. We could uh, probably stand here and give many, many more affirmations, ways in which we see God living through you and changing this city. Our hope and prayer is that we continue to live in those. We're going to ask you to stand and we're going to read a uh, prayer of self-dedication by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And if you would, just uh, read this with us. Lord Jesus Christ, take all my freedom, my memory, my understanding, and my will. All that I have and cherish you have given me. I surrender it all to you. Your grace and your love are wealth enough for me. Give me these, Lord Jesus, and I ask for nothing more. And we pray this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. As you leave, let me encourage you to pick up your giving statement on the way out. Thanks. Have a great day.